Welcome to To Your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here, as always, with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. So we will wrap up Nahum, a little bit of the most riveting section of Isaiah, and then uh, the book of Acts as well. And so uh, we have one more chapter left of Nahum, which has been uh, a pretty bleak book up to this point. Um, but uh, you got in this last chapter some like pretty intense imagery, like God's going to rip off the clothes and leave you naked for your shame and he will throw excrement at you and um, all this sort of uh, judgment directly uh, uh, directed at the Assyrians and and what they will do or what they will um, how God's judgment will play out and um, even even verse 19 where it's like all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil like Nineveh you're evil and then everybody's going to be celebrating the day you fall and so um, it's it's pretty harsh yeah I think we see that again as we tend to see in the prophets that there's no escaping God's judgment Uh, and reading this last chapter felt kind of brutal it's hard to rectify with the goodness of God but I think again we can think back to the beginning of Nahum and that promise that God is patient and how many opportunities for repentance Nineveh had. Um, And then even for us, we can consider the pain and the suffering of this judgment and consider the judgment that Christ bore for us, which was even worse than what they are facing. So only three chapters, but what's sort of uh, some final thoughts? I, you know, I felt like we flew through it a little too quickly for me to really get a good grasp or take home on it. Uh, but I appreciated that the book started by emphasizing the omnipotence, the power, and the goodness of God, pointing out that God is slow to anger, but he's not going to clear the guilty. And that should be good news for any of us. Uh, it led me to pray more and to pray more, especially for those who don't know the salvation of Christ and for those who haven't submitted to the goodness and sovereignty of God yet. Yeah, I mean, we end up with really two prophets that have some focus on Nineveh and, um, and, and even kind of holding those in some tension where what in one, like it's communicated, like God has a heart for this pagan nation, that there's some potential of repentance in them and, and God wants the, the Israelites to, to, to feel some sort of direction towards that. Their role is to bless the nations. They are to go and that God can even bring about repentance in the story and God's judgment in Jonah is actually upon the Israelites. But then, um, Nahum becomes sort of the contrast to that of like, okay, like, but the Assyrians are still evil and wicked and oppressive and, and doing all these awful things. So it's like, God still care about evil. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 he may cause people to show grace and mercy and blessing towards the world, but God will still deal with wickedness in the world too and i think having both books helps us provide a little bit of that tension between between both things happening yeah i mean you want if you have a god who is omnipotent you want him to be good yeah and if you have a god who is good you want him to be omnipotent so he can actually follow through on his goodness it's true and so uh, we'll jump to Isaiah. Uh, so we're in the sort of the second section of Isaiah here. And uh, we start hearing about Babylon. Uh, and there's a bit of a jump uh, towards this direction. And um, and just as an acknowledgement for y'all reading this and you're reading next week, uh, this is one of the more hard. Uh, hard and not in terms of even interpretive hard it's just repetitive it's poetic it's really dark um yeah uh and it's probably a lot of more sermonettes that were collected over time it doesn't necessarily always feel even even how much he jumps around at times like he's just sitting here penning this uh in a row but um it was just a reminder like babylon's coming they're not that far off and and god reminds israelites immediately and like look babylon's coming but they won't last forever. The, the Persians will be coming after them. Babylon will be destroyed. Um, there'll be judgment for them. 
Yeah, we see here that God is saying he's going to make all things right, not just in Israel, but all things and all people. And this is part of God's plan to be a light to all nations and that all people will worship him. Yeah, and it carries over in chapter 14 where it's still just the reminder to the Israelites, like, you will be restored. This this coming of Babylon is not the final verdict on things. Yeah, and you know, we're reading lots of woes and judgments on nations and stuff, but even this comment about the sojourners joining Israel is a reminder that God's judgment is not on every single person from every people group, but on those who reject Yahweh and who don't submit to his ways. Uh, God's people will continue to multiply as the Gentiles join him. Yeah, and, and as Israel's restored, they're, they're even told to, to taunt the king of Babylon. Babylon and um, there's historically some connections to, to Satan here. Uh, I, I won't get into a whole podcast on like some of my questions about that um, because the context at least is directed at the king of Babylon here. But um, Babylon certainly has a historic connection to evil, though. And um, rulers of evil things are always the adversary, mm-hmm. always the one that are working against, and in some ways are always a type of Satan. So, um, but uh, the, they are going to have this sort of victory over Babylon, which is sort of the, the kingdom of evil in a lot of ways in the storyline. Yeah. I think one of the main sins we see in this commentary is that whoever we're talking about has the desire to be worshipped. And to cause others to worship you or to worship another is a complete rejection of our creative design. God is going to make things right. And eventually when all comes to light, we're going to step back and look at these other things we've worshipped and be like, I cannot believe that I feared and worshipped this created thing instead of the creator God. So even step back and ask God to reveal to you the weakness of the idols that we sometimes end up worshiping even if we don't intend to. So, and, and uh, Isaiah keeps going even with all of God's en- or all of Israel's enemies. And so the Assyrians are included in that mm-hmm. bunch um, as much as a bunch of other groups like the Philistines as well. And so uh, the Philistines are even going to have a moment to celebrate. They're going to, they're going to have this sort of a death of Ahaz. They're going to celebrate that, but God's sort of like, it's not going to last long. And, um, and there's almost a message to those of the other nations. What will one answer the messenger of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion and in her, the afflicted and his people find refuge. So even in the judgments of God, all of them, and we're, we've read a whole collection of them, there's always news of mercy and protection yeah. in, in, in the Lord of Zion. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Uh, so Moab, uh, this one sort of feels like a slow burn and almost is like, Moab, you're, you're going to kind of almost feels like uh, kind of get cross in a crossfire your fugitives or possibly refugees or other ways to translate that word um are, are going to flee and ultimately um uh they're, they're going to try to find refuge but moab still has the sin of pride we eventually get there in chapter 16 um and and god gives instructions to israel in the midst of this saying hey show hospitality welcome the refugees welcome the foreigners this is your job do this and, and kingship will actually be restored to you there's a lot of imagery in, in, in Moab, uh, which is interesting because it's like the most desert section of all the places. But um, yeah, I, I think there's there's sort of these messages of like, this is who I still want you to be, Israel, in the midst of of all these judgments to, to be the place that ref- welcomes the outsider and the oppressed. Yeah. And, you know, we hear or we see Moab pleading for safety from Assyrian oppression. And then we get a very pretty clear messianic prophecy that the Christ is the answer to that. He's the deliverer yeah. of our oppression. He will be that king that ends up being promised, the restored king. Uh, and so Damascus and uh, at the time there were Assyrians and Syrians. The Assyrians were more in the Iraqi area. This is the capital of Syria or in that group. Um, and, and Israel has had at times a, a, a relationship with them. And um and so they're sort of, once again, just 
Israel, these are all of Israel's neighbors are all part of God kind of having this, this sort of um, judgment. And in a lot of ways, it kind of feels that way. I mean, just to take a step out, it kind of feels mm-hmm. like to me, like God is looking over all these nations in sort of the, the surrounding region and looking at them all and saying like, look, none of you are righteous. There's none of you that seek God. You don't treat people with justice and mercy. And, I, and I've had enough of it. And instead of sending a flood, like back in Genesis, like I'm going to move my pawns of judgment and, and you all are going to have to deal with that. And so, yeah, it just feels like that country after country after country. Yeah, I think it keeps, uh, Isaiah keeps reiterating here that Israel is trusting in man instead of God and they're going to reap the consequences of that. The man is not going to save another people. God himself is the only one who does that. And then we get down to Cush, which is getting pretty far away. And this is like south of Egypt. Um, and uh, and so uh, they are also, uh, and, and Cushing and Egypt kind of get lumped together in a little bit of this. Um, but they, they're not, they're not going to get spared in this process either. Yeah. And then Egypt. Uh, so um, God will come out of Egypt swiftly. And then they, they start, there's even talk about their wise counselors, the necromancers, their advisors, there's wisdom advancement. And like God speaking, there's going to be some civil disaster, some economic disaster, some intellectual disaster. Like they are a, a country probably with a lot of pride and confidence in who they are. And, and God's, has language very much directed at them in in this section. Yeah, you know, we see God in the book of Isaiah emphasizing his judgment on sin, but we also see just as much really God's plan for deliverance. And so in chapter 19, we see God reminding us that no one can stand against God's supreme work. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus, even Egypt and Assyria. But then if you're reading that, suddenly it was like, oh, but Egypt and Assyria still have some uh, rebuilding role of, of there's language of in that day. So it definitely points to some day of restoration day of maybe even judgment with that but there's some connection of this road between these two countries and um, oddly enough it's a road jesus will take down to egypt and back with his parents but um, there's definitely some language of like this this future oriented role that there's going to be egyptians that are going to play or assyrians are going to play where there's peace and prosperity Um, maybe egypt will have this moment of repentance in history or something along those lines yeah it's interesting that egypt in general when we read it in scripture represents like a bad place and a place of um fleeing and sin uh and bad things but we see this hope for these nations and it's a reminder that god longs that all people will worship him and he is promising really an impossible thing that the place that was the seat of destruction and wickedness will house an altar and those who are enemies of god will worship and those are enemies with one another will worship god together but before you get too far is isaiah gets to reenact through nakedness or at least being stripped down to maybe just his undergarments whatever it may be of um of what it looks like to be a prisoner uh that that Egypt's going to be a prisoner to to another nation, and so um, the, he will now enact that for apparently for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, what this will look like uh, for Egypt uh, to experience? It's like he's enacting the prophecy. Yeah, it's pretty weird. It is, yeah. And I mean, we see it with Israel too, them going into captivity after putting their trust in in a nation or yep. in other people. Um, but we have an unshakable security in Christ. But once again, this Babylonian conquest that's going to really take out both the north and the south, God's constantly reminding the Israelites, but they're, they're not going to be here forever. The, the folks from Elam and Midia, which are really the Persians, they're going to destroy the Babylonians. God has not forgotten you. 
Yeah, Babylon tends, seems to carry a theme, even to Revelation in the Bible, of this sort of representation of this ultimate wickedness or evil uh, versus God and his ultimate power. Yeah, and for you, for you to take a step back, I mean, everything east of the Garden of Eden carries with it this movement towards wickedness. And Babylon is certainly east and eventually becomes the place where the Tower of Babel really is out of. And so um, mm-hmm. this idea of Babylon being the, 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 the place of wickedness has a very long historical connection. And so, yeah. Yeah. So even seeing God's triumph and promised triumph over Babylon is kind of like a miniature picture of us and how we see God triumph over evil ultimately. Yep. And then uh, there's uh, before uh, Israel gets too excited about the fact that Babylonians are going to fall. Uh, there's just a reminder that Jerusalem's going to be taken down too. And uh, yeah. there's, there starts to be language here and it carries over into next week of like, look, Jerusalem, you tried to f- solve all your own problems. Um, whether you fortified your city, whether you started working with the Egyptians, whatever it is, you, you sought help elsewhere as opposed to actually seeking me. And you even had a party to celebrate how great your scheming was. And, and God's coming in going like, look, that's not how I set you up. That's not how I desired you to be. And so, um, the, that, that time, that sort of like, Hey, we, we end up doing all right. Uh, that time is coming to an end. Yeah. Jerusalem, the light of the world, it's going to grow dark. Yep. And so, and then Tyre and Sidon, two port cities that we see plenty of in the New Testament as well, um, that they are a wealthy city. I mean, sea trade is going to get you a lot of money. And and God even points out some of the problems there, where he's like, she will return to her wages and she will prostitute herself for all the kings of the world on the face of the earth. And so um, th- that was their drive. And God's saying like, look, you're, you guys are no better. And um, they're, they're, they will be brought to an end as well. Yeah. All right. So we'll jump to the New Testament. Yeah, so if you notice, Acts kind of like the last half is really following closely the life of Paul. So we're going to see a lot of details about you know these last years of his life. Yeah, and so Luke's Luke's likely the of close traveling companion through most of this. So there's a lot of details he has that he doesn't have to get from elsewhere. And um, and Luke is also, I think, very intentionally setting us up to see a whole lot of parallels. Like mm-hmm. when Paul Paul had just in maybe a chapter or two ago. Um, run into these followers of John the Baptist, these disciples of John the Baptist that he ultimately kind of brings under under himself in terms of teaching them about what true baptism and repentance is. And of that group, he ends up with 12, or as Luke says, about 12 disciples. Um, he told us, the disciples, he tells the disciples that he needs to go to Jerusalem. The disciples object to his mission to Jerusalem. He's accused of speaking against the temple. He's convicted by a Roman governor. Um, he has to go before someone in Herod's family. Like all these things are like, Paul um, or Luke trying to draw parallels between the end of Jesus' life and, and Paul's life to go like, look, like Paul is becoming more and more like Jesus mm-hmm. as he follows Jesus. And and that is sort of the trajectory that I think Luke needs to like wants to draw out of of what a life of following Jesus looks like is that we also take up our cross and become more like our Savior. Yeah. So, you know, we talk a lot about having a type of Christ and that is what happens before Christ. So we talk about Elisha or Joshua or Moses pointing to Christ. But now that Christ has come, what we see on the other side and these parallels and connections is this conformity to the image of Christ like Paul talks about or or even Paul in Philippians talks about wanting to become like Christ in his death and resurrection. And and so that's what we're seeing here. And also, I think Paul is kind of a picture of, of what 
it looks like for the church, this is just not an, not just meant to be an individual who's being conformed to the image of Christ, but the church and the followers of Jesus will walk the same road. Yeah, I think Luke wants to communicate that through the storytelling to be like, look, this is what it looks like as you follow Jesus. And yeah. there might be suffering and there might be persecution and there might be all these things that go with it. But yeah, so Paul goes before uh, this this Roman leader and at the very last possible second, for whatever reason, he doesn't pull the card before this, but suddenly reveals, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that changes everything, Paul. And mm-hmm. so uh, they end up not flogging him, and um, and but they still want to get to the bottom of what Whatever Paul has stirred up in Jerusalem is bothering the Roman people who the Roman leaders are charged with keeping the peace, the Pax Romana. And so they want to deal with this because obviously they're starting some riots and something about Paul's presence is causing problems. So they go before the religious leaders to basically find it out. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a hilarious moment, I think. <laughs> I think Paul sort of sees these two groups that hate each other. And Paul's like, hey, I'm a Pharisee too. And he knows that, like they'll start arguing and the Pharisees will probably end up claiming Paul, but they'll argue with the Sadducees about it because they hate each other. And but Paul's like, look, I, I have a clear conscience, which is great. Um, even how he interacts with um, uh, the Ananias here. Because he just, I mean, he accuses Ananias of being this whitewash wall, yeah. And then um, has to apologize to him because he didn't know he was a religious leader. So. And also is like, also, I have a clear conscience. It is interesting. I think it's neat to watch how Paul, um, though he has some idea of what's going to happen because the Lord has revealed it to him. He, he's discerning in every moment. So he takes every opportunity he can to preach the gospel. But in situations like this, doesn't seem that like too interested in wasting his time on people who aren't interested in listening. And so he kind of sets them up to argue with themselves instead. Yeah. And Paul didn't come to town to, to start an argument. Paul came to town to give money to the church in Jerusalem. Like that right. was his main goal uh, of coming here. He was, he was warned that some of this stuff would happen. Um, but uh, now it's just become, oh, in some ways it feels like just a nuisance to him. He's like, all right, let's just settle this so I can get on with my life. Um, and so there's a whole plot to kill Paul and uh, Paul's nephew seems to find out and tell the, the Roman leader. And so the Roman leader who's tasked to protect the citizens of Rome um, is ultimately not going to let Paul just go before this tribunal that's planning on killing him at the moment. Um, so with any citizen, uh, they're sort of the sending off uh, to um to Caesarea, uh, the one on the coast, uh, which uh, there's this giant Roman palace there. And Felix, the governor, is going to be able to to hear Paul out about what's going on here, why this whole mob of non-Romans uh, want to kill this Roman citizen. Right. Yeah. And they've got to keep him safe and they can't keep him safe in Jerusalem anymore. <laughs> nope, they sure can. And so Paul's essentially like, look, like I came to bring an offer to Jerusalem. I went to the temple, a part of that. I didn't do anything they're accusing me from. There's even some people from Asia who like make up these accusations and those cowards aren't even here. And, and like the worst thing I said is with respect to the resurrection of the dead. I'm on trial before you today, but come on, Felix, like, is that enough to really convict me on? Like that's, that just feels like the appeal. It's like, Felix, can you see through all this? Like there's really nothing here. Yeah. So, and Paul, interestingly enough to me, at least doesn't seem to get offended for the most part in these situations, but kind of use every situation and persecution as a chance to testify to what he believes. So he's trusting that wherever he lands, it's an opportunity to share the gospel. And, um, again, it's, I think it's a good opportunity for us to think back to like different places we are and different opportunities we have, uh, to share the gospel and to see different circumstances as opportunities rather than inconveniences. 
Yeah, Paul has this like two-year ongoing conversation with Felix. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul's given some freedoms, but he can't go necessarily far yet. Um, and Felix seems to be also wanting maybe some of the money that Paul brought. It seems like he's he's in, maybe interested in being paid in this process. But um, but Felix, like most leaders, ultimately just wants to appease the people uh, if that's going to keep the peace. So Paul stays under house arrest even even when there eventually becomes a new kind of governor in town. Yeah. But with this new governor, uh, the Jewish leaders are still trying to end Paul's life, which is so peculiar. It's like, all right, two years later, come on, guys, give it a rest. But uh, there's another trial, another lack of evidence. Paul, um, Paul again appeals to like the Roman sense of trial setup, but eventually he's like, look, like if this doesn't get cleared, I'm tired of being probably stuck here. Right. Like, can Caesar not just make a determination of, about this situation? And um, once you appeal to Caesar, I guess you're allowed to go before Caesar. And so, um, that's sort of the situation here. Yeah. And then, uh, and then to, to follow the narrative, as I said, like the, the sort of Jesus parallel. So Paul had appeared before the Jewish council. Paul appeared before basically the pilot type character. Um, and now Paul's going to appeal before, uh, the Herod type character, which is Agrippa, which is actually the great grandson of Herod. And so, um, yeah, you, you continue into this world. Um, though he appeals to Agrippa as if Agrippa, like, knows the scripture, knows Jewish customs, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Um, and Festus spends a moment catching Agrippa up on all the scenarios um, but and brings Paul out to speak to Agrippa, but we'll deal with that next week. Yeah, but Paul continues to kind of just trust in the sovereign hand of God, which we'll see more and more clearly through the rest of the book of Acts. Yeah, but I mean, it's so it's so fascinating that Paul's significant enough of a character that the governor, the, right. the Herod's family member, all, all these supportive people are all listening to him, talking to him, being willing to hear it out. He's not thrown in some dingy prison where he has no voice amongst the leadership. No, he, yeah, he's he reasoning, to, he's educated. I mean, they're enjoying their conversations with him, it sounds like. Yeah, they haven't cast him off yet. And then Psalm 137. So some people believe this is the newest psalm that was written um, because it was written when Judah was in the Babylonian captivity. Um, But I think ultimately it's a song longing for home and we can reflect that on our own longing for home in heaven. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely tie-ins to the Isaiah readings too. God's not going to forget Jerusalem. Babylon's going to be judged and there's going to be some end to it. And so um, there's just that, yeah, that sense of longing in the midst of it. So what are we looking for next week? So in Isaiah, I would encourage you just to think about the idea of justice and equity. How does God define or value fairness regarding the wealthy versus the poor and some of these judgments he's speaking about? And then the New Testament, you're going to finish the book of Acts. It feels like we've been reading Acts for a long, long time, but it's going to end fairly abruptly. So think like, what is Luke's reasoning for ending Acts as abruptly as he did instead of, you know, wrapping it up nicely? Yeah. Uh, and f- for me, like you get those moments throughout Isaiah where it's like, all right, but there will be a restored Israel and it will look better. But there's also language like, and when you come back, Israel, this is what you're going to be like. Here are the things that are going to be the hallmarks of you as a nation. And what are some of those as you read through them? Like, what are mm. the ways that Israel will be distinct and different from the world. The New Testament, yeah, I jumped the gun a little bit last week. This week becomes Paul's testimony. Uh, and, and before... Um, uh, before Agrippa. And um, yeah, notice some of those differences because I think we'll unpack them. And then um, the question of like, why do you think Luke slows down so much to talk about the journey from um, from Caesarea to, to Rome and the shipwreck and all these details? There's just so many details. If Jesus and Paul have parallels in their story, in the storytelling that Luke is telling, like, why do you think that might be? Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's worthwhile to tackle. All right. That's it for us this week. Thanks, y'all. Thank you.